Well, welcome everyone. Thanks for um, for coming. Hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas and a wonderful New Year's. Um, this is the last in our Christology section. And it's been, for me, and there's a treat today, there's five of us that are going to go through the last section, the bulk of articles. And I think they're a really exciting section of articles because we're going to talk about Christ's um, threefold office. And we'll get into that because I have the privilege of the article that kind of introduces it all. But um, it's been very encouraging to me to focus on such a seminal aspect of theology and doctrine to look at Christology, the person and work of Christ, because it's so central to our faith and to our theology and to our belief and to, um, to, to certainly everything within um, our, our faith. And so as we have begun every week, um, we're going to have the last focal section of the statement from the book. If you don't have the book, we're happy to, uh, to hand out some more. Um, but the last section, so we'll read, I'll read the last section, and then we should all read it together from beginning to end, because this is kind of the last of our sections. So the, the focal section that we have today is the last paragraph. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. Amen. So that's our focal section talking about that. And we've got articles 22 through 26 to kind of walk us through the aspect of Christ's threefold office, going delving into each of those individually, and then wrapping up the last article. So uh, if you will, read with me the entire statement. We'll do it one last time as a group, um, sort of as a, as a body of believers together. So We confess the mystery and wonder of God-made flesh, and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, he became truly man, two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us, crucified, died, and buried. He rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. Amen. Thanks, everyone. So I will open us up in prayer, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love, for your grace, for your sovereignty and providence, and just for Christ and for his death, his burial, his resurrection, and what that means for us, that we can be adopted into your family as firstborn, and that we can um, just relish in his, his glory, your glory, and know that we have an eternal home, that the only thing we can trust in is his death, his blood, his body broken, and what that means for us. Thank you for your mercy. Just bless this discussion. May it be used to grow us uh, in our faith, grow us in knowing more about you. And as we have a just really great discussion among believers, let us encourage each other and be encouraged by the truths that we discuss. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So we've gone through the entire um, statement, uh, broken down every article, 
And historical way that this has worked is that we spend the bulk of the majority on the first article of the section, and then we have about five minutes left at the end to go through the last four. So I'm going to try not to do that because we've got four other people that have a lot of wisdom and insight to share. So if you have your articles, um, go to Article 22. So as I sort of alluded to already, we're going to talk about Christ's mediatorial office and his threefold office, so prophet, priest, and king. So I'll read the article, and then we'll dive in. So it says, We affirm that Jesus Christ is the sole mediator between God and his people. We affirm the mediatorial role of Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king in both his state of humiliation and his state of exaltation. We affirm that he was anointed by the Holy Spirit in order to execute this mediatorial office to which he was called by the Father. We deny that God has had or will have any other incarnations or that there are or will be any mediators of redemption other than the Lord Jesus Christ. We deny salvation apart from Jesus Christ alone. So um, as a side note, if you don't have your Bible with you, you can also look down in the uh, footnotes, but somebody... Uh, get ready to read 1 Timothy verses two, or 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, please. So as um, I was getting ready for this, I wanted to look through other examples, and you know, I found a lot of uh, individuals that have written or discussed this threefold office of Christ. And Kim Riddlebarger, um, who if you listen to The White Horse Inn, uh, is a pastor and a um, uh, theologian on staff at Westminster Seminary. And one of the things that he said I thought was really compelling, this developing this framework or this context of the prophet, priest, and king for um, describing Christ's threefold offices is very um, useful because it gives an appropriate framework, an appropriate construct for us to understand and for us to have relation about these three aspects of, person, of Christ's person work. And it's really important because it highlights key aspects of Christ's work um, and his purpose, being prophet, priest, and king. And these are things that were familiar to the uh, individuals of the Old Testament. There was an article written by Matthew Richard, and I'm just going to read just a quick excerpt from that because I think it just describes how important this is to think about. So in the Old Testament, three different kinds of people take center stage in the story of God's salvation of his people Israel, <clears throat> prophet, priest, and king. And why this is so important is because these were real offices by real people. Prophets rebuked sin, proclaimed mercy to the crush, and interpreted events of the past, present, and future. They functioned as mediators, proclaiming only what was revealed to them. Moses spoke, acted, and occupied the office of prophet, bringing about the genuine redemption for the Hebrew people. Old Testament priests, on the other hand, functioned as representatives, offering gifts of sacrifice for sins on behalf of men in relation to God. And priests, like Aaron, offered up goats as a substitute, so that the, through these means, the forgiveness of sins could be distributed. And then finally, kings in the Old Testament functioned in the realm of exercising judicial power in the civil realm and were oftentimes military figures who led military campaigns. And kings like David established a dynasty that concretely lasts for over 400 years. So we have real examples in the Old Testament of prophets, of priests, and of kings. And what we have in Christ is someone that is greater than any Old Testament prophet, any Old Testament priest, any Old Testament king. And that's why this is such 
an important thing because developing it into this framework was not only important for the Old Testament and important for the people of the New Testament because they understood. They could relate to each of those offices and relate to each of those aspects that they knew and had studied and had been a part of. And it's it's really um, it's really such an important framework and context to understand that. So with that, someone read 1 Timothy 2.5. This is the biblical data. So we've got a couple verses from the Bible that will highlight prophet, priest, and king. And then my colleagues will um, then walk us through individual articles that will go through prophet, priest, and king and, and get in depth in a little more. So I kind of have the privilege of being the umbrella and then we'll dive into the different arms of the umbrella or the different um, wings of the umbrella, whatever, how you want to kind of break that analogy out. So someone read um, 1 Timothy 2.5. There we go. So there is the biblical data right from 1 Timothy 2.5 that just sort of highlights that, that, that Jesus is one mediator between God and men. And so we have that at least laid out in the scripture that Christ is the mediator. And so that reminds me, you know, we're getting ready to, to have two different Sunday school um, sections coming up. One on the vintage faith and the London Baptist Confession. Um, and within the London Baptist Confession, you have chapter 8. And I'm just going to read that because I think that sets up the framework for our discussion. So chapter 8, Christ the Mediator says, It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of the church, heir of all things, judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. So we have this really nice, succinct description of Christ the mediator. I mean, that, that chapter is quite extensive. I mean, it goes through a lot of different aspects, but that first opening paragraph of chapter 8 lays out Christ, his work, and his threefold office as prophet, priest, and king. So just to give a couple more verses before I open it up to my colleagues to kind of walk us through each of the rest of the articles, um, someone pull up Acts 3, and I'm going to ask you to go back to 19 because I think it kind of sets the stage. 22 is kind of the focus verse, but Acts 3, 19 through 22. And then I'll, we, can, we can prep this, someone with Hebrews 5, 5 through 6, and then Psalm 2, 5 through 6. Those are our three verses, and then I'll turn it over to my uh, colleagues as we sort of wrap up with the denial section of it too. So Acts 3, 19 through 22, Hebrews 5, 5 through 6, and Psalm 2, 5 through 6. Acts 3, uh, therefore repent and turn, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Moses said, the Lord God will rise, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. To him you shall listen to everything he says to you. Thanks, John. So the key there, so you've got this whole, um, this, this entire section, but the key there is Moses saying back in the Old Testament, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. You know, you have, um, you have, um, 
notes of this in Deuteronomy and throughout the Old Testament that, that there is a greater prophet coming. Raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers that you shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. So we have right there from Acts all the way back referring to the Old Testament this idea of Christ as prophet. So Hebrews 5, 5 through 6, and again, there's multiple verses, and I'm going to let, um, I believe it's Jeremy that's going to talk to us a bit about the article referring to prophets, so I'm not going to steal all of his thunder, but there's many more verses for each of these aspects that I'm going to talk about that I'll let my colleagues talk about. So Hebrews 5, 5 through 6. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, yeah. And we'll talk about, um, we'll talk about this, this actually comes up in one of the next articles. So you have Christ as prophet, Christ as priest, and then finally Christ as king. So Psalm 2, 5-6, and I really love this, um, this psalm. It's very early on, obviously, number two of a... Uh, but it, it really has such a, a, a nice ring um, in, in these verses. So uh, Psalm five, 2, verse 5 to 6, if anyone who has that. <clears throat> so it says, Then he will speak to him in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so we have throughout... The entirety of the body of Scripture, biblical data that we can put into this construct of understanding Christ's mediatorial office, his mediation between God and man in these three different aspects, in prophet, in priest, and king. And we could spend an entire class talking about it. Guess what? We are because we have four other articles that are going to go into each of these. So I get the opportunity for the introduction. Let's read the denial, because I think the denials, um, it was either Danny or you, John, one of you said that the denials are often as important, if not more important sometimes, in, than the affirmations. And I don't mean that there's weight and character that's, that makes them more important, but you have to look at these and really focus on these denials because it sets the, the foundation so firmly. So it says we deny that God has had or will have any other incarnations or that there will be any other mediators of redemption other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is firmly affirming, in a way, I guess a negative affirmation, that, that, that there's no one else, no other individual, no other person, no other prophet, no other priest, no other king that will do what Christ has done. There will be no other incarnations. He's the only one. There'll be no other mediators, no other prophet, priest, or king that can do the work and purpose of Christ. And then finally, we deny salvation apart from Jesus Christ alone. This is firmly saying that there's no other way of salvation other than the work, the death, and the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. So I think it's really foundational to understand those denials and sort of partner them with the affirmation that Christ is the sole mediator between God and his people. So any other comments on the opening from the rest of my colleagues? This is a panel discussion. If you guys have been to conferences for this panels, I love when they turn to the other individuals and open it up. So I'll ask the rest of the, uh, the ones on this panel today, anything that you guys want to say about the opening uh, before we go into each individual article? Thing. 
Now, Jeremy, I'll turn it over to you. Okay. Take us into 23. Okay. Okay, thanks, Jeremy. The as we turn to think of Christ as the uh, supreme prophet of God, as the statement of faith puts it here, Jeremy covered well kind of what we uh, those aspects of a prophet. But what do you typically first think of when you think of a prophet? Delivering a message. Delivering a message. What was old? Old. <laughs> okay, yeah, you kind of do right. Wise. Wise. Now, season to the future. <clears throat> season to the future, right? A, a lot of times, that's the that's the one that I kind of made my mind immediately jumps to. It's just someone who's seeing the future, and it's kind of if if I don't think, if I don't let my thought process go beyond that, it seems kind of a benign. Okay, he's just telling us things about the future. But what, as you think through Scripture, it, it, even in that regard, a prophet coming and telling the people about the future, what's the whole point of that? To repent. To repent. It's warnings, right? Second uh, Chronicles 36. I'm going to read through a number of verses uh, just to kind of help paint the picture of Article 23 for us. But Second Chronicles uh, 36 says, this is all heading into uh, the captivity, the exile that's about to happen to Israel. It says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Mm. I love that because that shows you the heart of our <laughs> heavenly father. Because we can, if, as you read through the prophets, you kind of maybe read the, you know, the hellfire and brimstone kind of message. And yeah, in a sense, there's a hellfire and brimstone kind of message, but we oftentimes forget what our Heavenly Father is doing through that message. He's compassionately saying, repent, turn to me. And then just as this point paints it out, says they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Like Finally, what God had said would take place is taking place because they did not heed his word. So he is, he is uh, finally, the only remedy left is the wrath. And guess what? Does God work even through his wrath to bring his people back to him? Yeah. As you read... One of my favorite stories in Second Chronicles is the uh, story of King Manasseh, who's this horribly evil king. In fact, Manasseh is the one who's blamed for the, he kind of, his name's the one that's attached to the blame for the exile. But at one point, God sends an army in, and they haul Manasseh away, throw him in a dungeon, it says, and Manasseh called out to God. He called out to God and repented and and uh, God restored him to the throne. And even though he didn't do a great job, he, he should have, like some of his predecessors and those after him, burned up the idols. He kind of threw them out in the valley and kind of left them alone in the, in the uh, storage room. But there's this repentance. And we think of Jonah and Nineveh. And what made, Nineveh, what made Jonah so upset? The people listened. The people listened. <laughs> they repented. And God, you were going to do this? And God <laughs> relented. That's exactly right. 
So when we think about prophets, this, that's kind of, we, we need to think about the message they have. We need to think about the message giver and the, the heart of our Heavenly Father. Let's, let's read Article 23 together. Uh, we affirm that as the supreme prophet of God, Jesus Christ was both the subject and object of prophecy. We affirm that Jesus Christ revealed and proclaimed the will of God, prophesied future events, and is in himself the fulfillment of God's promises. Uh, the, the reference verse there is a verse we already read at, at, out of Acts 3. And Acts 3, as Peter is speaking to the people and he brings up this office of prophet, he, he points back to, frankly, someone that we often don't think of as prophet, Moses. Mm. I, I don't think of, when I think of Moses, I don't think prophet. When I think prophet, I think of like Jeremiah and Isaiah and mm-hmm. Amos and all these, all those prophets. But he points to, to Moses. Um, let's look at Numbers 12. Numbers 12. This is an interesting story and it, it opens up for us something that's incredibly unique about Moses um, that we, we, I think I often overlook. But when you think about Moses and in, in, through this lens that God shows us, you realize just the importance of Moses in, in Scripture. Uh, Numbers 12, beginning with verse 1, says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people uh, who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, come out you three to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. And he said, This is God speaking. Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, saying I speak face to face with him. Mm. With him, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. So we have there this picture of the importance of Moses. Uh, God communicated to Moses in a way that he really never communicated to the, to the other prophets. He, not in dreams, not in visions, he says, when I delivered my message to Moses, I delivered it face to face. And this important line, he was faithful in my house. Um, we, we read out of Acts, Peter saying that um, Moses prophesied a greater prophet. We see that in Deuteronomy 18. For the sake of time, we're not going to look at that. But thinking of this ho- uh, language of faithful in my house, let's, let's look forward to the New Testament. Hebrews 3. And if someone, when they get there, wants to read... Uh, verses 1 through 6. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6.
holy brothers, you who share in heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Jesus, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Hmm. Okay, so we have this picture. What makes Christ, the, as it says again, the supreme prophet of God? How does he compare here to Moses? More glory. Kind of worthy more glory. Kind of worthy and more glory. <clears throat> he was the not just not just the person who received the message, he's the very son of God. He's the son of God. We think um, well here, just flip back a page, Hebrews one. Just the first the first couple of verses of Hebrews. Long ago at many times. And in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This is, it's not just the one who is receiving the message from, from God. You know, we think of God as being removed from us and he comes down and gives the message. Jesus Christ is God. He is the son of God and he is coming. He came down to deliver the message. We think of uh, the, very, the very purpose of uh, this whole study, John 1.14, and the word mm. became flesh and dwelt among us. I think an article I was reading uh, and preparing for this kind of rightly drew this conclusion is the prophets, they received the word of God. Jesus Christ is called the Word of God. He is the Word of God. What the prophets were prophesying, many times it's types and shadows of the Word to come, of Jesus Christ. Uh, John 20. As we think about that, I want to read the Westminster Confession um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, actually, here. Question 24 asks, how, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? It says, Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. So this circles all the way back around to those prophets. When we, when we hear them prophesying the hellfire and damnation, they are, they are, it's a plea from God to say, repent, turn back from your evil ways and call on me. Come back to me. So this is exactly what Jesus Christ did when he came. This is why um, John can say um, in John 20, uh, 30, uh, the kind of the, what's titled the purpose of this book, because that's what it is. It's the reason John wrote. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Mm. Where uh, whoever has the last section is going to talk about Christ coming in judgment. 
and we'll and get in more into that. But for those of us who repent, who come to, to Christ, who are now brought into the family of God, we no longer have that judgment to fear because we have, we have listened to Christ, to uh, the, will of God, the will of God spoken through Jesus Christ and lived in Jesus Christ that we turn to him uh, for our salvation. Um, let me read the denial and we'll pass, pass the baton on. Got to wrap this up quick. The denial of Article 23, we deny that Jesus Christ ever uttered a false prophecy or a false word or that he failed or will fail to fulfill all prophecies regarding himself. Uh, in the Deuteronomy 18 passage, again, we're not going to read it, but this is where Moses uh, says that a greater prophet will come. Well, then he spells out, says, as you're looking for this greater prophet, he, here are some ways that you can tell that it's the greater prophet. And he does it in the negative. Anyone who does, anyone whose prophecies don't come true, that's you can rule him out right away. So uh, if you want to look later on in your own time, Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 to the end of the chapter, he kind of gives these reasons about what to look for. Well, when Christ came as the greater, greater, greatest prophet, the supreme prophet, we can see in the life of Christ and everything thereafter, not only all the fulfilling of um, all the Old Testament prop, uh, promises, but we see the fulfilling of all that <coughs> is and is to come. As Paul says, um, that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. He will never fail as our supreme prophet. He is that prophet who Moses said would come. Okay, we've got to pass, pass on. Who's next? I can look at my phone. Who's got Article 24? Uh-oh. <laughs> Damien? I do? You do. <laughs> well, then I studied the wrong one. <laughs> Can you add them? That's fine. <laughs> Which one did you study? <laughs> the last one. But that's okay. Danny, you have the last one? I do. Okay. <laughs> I must have read the email wrong. That's okay. Article 24, we affirm that Jesus Christ is our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, having made the perfect sacrifice of himself on our behalf and continuing to intercede for us before the Father. We affirm that Jesus Christ is both the subject and object of the supreme atoning sacrifice. We deny that Jesus Christ... Being from the tribe of Judah and not from the tribe of Levi, is disqualified from serving as our priest. We deny that he continually offers himself as a sacrifice in the Mass, as a victim and priest, even in an unbloody manner. We deny that he became a priest only in heaven and was not a priest on earth. Okay, so who is this Melchizedek person? of Salem. Yes. What else about Melchizedek do we know? And let's see, we're on 24. Abraham gave him a tenth of all of his possessions. Abraham gave him a tenth of all of his possessions. Who do we typically give our tenth to? God. To the church. To the intercessors, to the to the people who are sending the message, right? So, um, 
that those would be the priests, right? So those are the 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 people who receive the gifts of the people who are worshiping God, who receive the gifts and offer those up to God, are the priests. Melchizedek, you said, was king of Salem. But wait a minute, he's also receiving the tithe? So he's also a priest? Wait a minute, this doesn't make a lot of sense because we know in, um, in Israel, they had separation of duties. You couldn't be a priest and you... Well, I mean... There was kind of priest and prophet, but there was never king and priest. Right. There was king and prophet, but there was never prophet and priest and king, except for Melchizedek. Melchizedek being priest of the of God Most High, king of Salem, which is king of peace, by the way. And prophet. All of these rolled into one. Now, when Aaron, when the Aaronic Levitical priesthood was established, there, there, was, there were certain things that had to happen. And that is that the old things had to be put away, the new things had to start. Um, there was a, a defining moment where they had to be um, sanctified, set apart for God's use. Well, something else happened. That means that the priesthood of the Levites is no longer in effect. Okay, so let's um, let's read Hebrews nine twenty four through twenty eight, and this is really really tiny. So somebody else can read it, please. <laughs> See, and I had all my scripture verses all set up <laughs> and like really, really big so I could see them and highlighted and everything. Yep. Okay. 24 through 28. Yes, sir. Alright. For Christ. Yeah, lost my place. Sorry, right there it is. For Christ has entered not into holy places, made with his hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters, the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is, is it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Hmm. The difference between Christ's sacrifice and the Levitical continual sacrifices over and over was that their sacrifices only covered sin. They, it was a temporary covering. Uh, and it had to happen every year uh, in the Day of Atonement. I mean, it wasn't just every year. There were constant sacrifices in the temple. But every year on the Day of Atonement, they, they did this as a reminder. Hey, that sacrifice last year, <laughs> it wasn't good enough. You got to do it again. Mm -hmm. Next year, you got to do it again. You gotta do it again because the blood the blood of goats and lambs can never remove our sin. 
How many times did Christ die on the cross? Once. Once. When he died, what did he say? To tell us It is finished. A permanent seal on the document against us. That wrath that was against us was nailed to the cross. It was no longer against us because Christ paid for it in full. A legal definition, to telestai, that says you no longer owe this debt. Mm. The debt has been paid. Um, and because I didn't do all of these, um, let's, uh, let's, what time we got? <laughs> Not much. Not much, <laughs> so you know what? Good job. We're done. We're done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who's next? <laughs> we, I joke that that Danny and I would have about five minutes each. And that's yeah. probably about right. <laughs> it's, it's four and a half minutes each. Four and a half minutes each. We got nine minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be quick. This is a short one and should not be too controversial. Um, the affirmation is we affirm that that as King Jesus Christ reigns supremely over all earthly and supernatural powers. Now and forever. The denial uh, is we deny that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is merely a political kingdom of this world. We deny that earthly rulers are not accountable to him. So the three big things for this, this article, Jesus is currently reigning and his kingdom is the entire world. Mm -hmm. Everywhere. Mm -hmm. So... We could have added a denial, maybe, smarter people didn't, that his kingdom is some future kingdom. Right. So his kingdom is now, he's reigning mm -hmm. as king over all earthly and supernatural powers. Um, well, I'm going to, so obviously Psalm 2 was kind of the first, um, or one of the way, uh, things that we talked, uh, talked about in terms of establishing Christ as king. Um, Daniel 7, 13 and 14 um, is Daniel prophesying about... Christ, and we talked. I think we talked about this last the last session uh, with one of the other articles. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days, and came near before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. Hmm. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not be taken away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So that's kind of setting up that affirmation. Jesus is king now, his kingdom, and, and the dominion language that we see in Genesis is kind of pulling that through. A lot of the other um, references, especially in the book, kind of uh, tie Jesus to David. And so there's kind of a corollary between David as king and Jesus as king. Um, Paul talks about... Uh, talks about Christ's kingdom in 1 Corinthians 15. So I'm going to go there. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 24 through 26, or 23, uh, uh, for, or 22, sorry. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits after the house, after uh, that those who are uh, at Christ, 
who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, and he has abolished all rule and authority and power. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. Mm -hmm. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says uh, all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he has accepted who put all things in subjection to him. Uh, affirmation. <clears throat> Pretty clear. Denials. Two things about the denials. We deny that Jesus, that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is merely a political kingdom. Uh, I thought it was interesting that they said merely. Um, the so it so politics are not immune to Christ's kingdom. So we know that Romans thirteen kind of speaks clearly about the governments as ministers of Christ. So his rule, his earthly rule, is over. The politics of any country over the course of the uh, of the world, so it's not merely political, and that kind of gets to Israel looking for this political Messiah that was going to overthrow the Roman government, um, and prior and subsequent messiahs that promised this talked about that, um, but it was bigger than this. So it's not just politics. The Roman government was overthrown by the church. It just didn't look like a political maneuver when Jesus was alive. Um, and then that, and then the other denial, we deny that earthly rules are not accountable to him. So this goes to Romans 13, where it talks about what earthly ruler, that earthly rulers are his ministers. They are in subjection to him. So earthly rulers are accountable to Christ personally in terms of their sin and their need for him as their savior. But they are also additionally accountable to him to do good and to punish evil. And when they don't follow that, they are subjected to him. And I'll just finish with London Baptist chapter 24. God, the supreme ruler, or the supreme Lord and king of all the world, has ordained evil mag or civil, magistrates, civil magistrates to be under him over the people for his own glory and the public good. And to this end has armed them with the power of the sword for defense and encouragement of them that do good and for the punishment of evildoers. So this kind of talks about the denial of the idea that earthly rulers aren't, aren't accountable to him. There's, they're, they're just some other, they're, they're under some other authority. No, they're under Christ's authority as king. So, and I'll give you the rest. <laughs> Last five minutes. Did I do all right? Five three, minutes? Three minutes. Three minutes. <laughs> three minutes. <laughs> a little bit longer. <laughs> no, I'll try to keep it pretty short. Um, I think I have a way in my mind to sort of sit <laughs> down. Um, so Article 26, I love this because just as Article 22 is kind of an intro, kind of a summary, um, Article 26 is sort of the encapsulation of it all um, by sort of taking down those three different offices, describing in a way that's overarching. So the affirmation says that we affirm that when Jesus Christ has conquered all his enemies, he will hand over his kingdom to the Father. We affirm in the new heaven and new earth, God will be with his people, and that believers will see Jesus Christ face to face, will be made like him, and will enjoy him forever. So if you'll read with me at the bottom this sort of um, capstone verse that they've used here, uh, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. 
For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. If we look at the denial, it says that we deny that there is any other hope for humanity or any name or any way in which salvation may be found except in Jesus Christ alone. Mm. Obviously, that's really important to us as believers to know, understand, live, believe, breathe, eat, sleep, that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, right? That is, I can't think of a better way to sort of wrap up not only that article, but to wrap up this whole statement. I can't think of a better way other than to just state clearly and plainly that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. As we've talked about, there were sacrificial systems, right? There were political leaders. There were military rulers. There were all these ways, even now today, right? We have, we have those that hope in politics. We have those that hope in charismatic leaders. We have those that hope in themselves, right? So over the course of humanity, there's always been something to hope in, but it's never been perfect, right? It's never been actually... Um, it's never been the thing that will actually save us. And so what I appreciate, appreciate about this denial is that it, it states very clearly, very plainly that um, there is no other hope for humanity or any name or way in which salvation may be found except in Jesus Christ alone. Mm-hmm. Um, I did want to read a quick verse, uh, one of the other verses down there at the bottom. I will read it for the sake of time. This is Second Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be, uh, you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I think that's important. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and new earth. Because literally two verses above it, it says the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. I literally, again, I can't go back to, I can't think of any other hope we have outside of Christ. (laughs) If the heavenly bodies themselves will be burned up and dissolved, what hope do we have in anything other than Christ himself? Amen. other thing I thought was really interesting, this is just a side note, is that, you know, speaking of heavenly bodies being burned up and di- dissolved, this is sort of devoid of any sort of, this this part of this statement is devoid of any sort of um, stance or position on eschatology, right? There's no sort of like formal stance here. Here's what we believe in terms of our eschatological view. It literally just says, we affirm that Christ has conquered all of his enemies. We affirm that he will hand his kingdom over to God when he's done. And we deny that there's any hope for humanity outside of Christ himself. So even at the end of days, the thing that we all have, the thing that we all hope in, is Christ himself. Not, not even in a specific theology or anything like that. It's literally just Christ himself. And we have Christ himself uh, in his word made flesh, um, which is a good and great hope for all of us. So, um, Would you like me to pray to close? Sure. Cool. God, thank you so much for how much you love us. Thank you for the word made flesh. Thank you, God, that you have revealed yourself to us um, in your word. Thank you so much that we can come together as believers this morning, study your word together, worship you, 
um, and just be as a body thankful for what it is that you've done for us. We ask that you would bless us this morning. We ask that you would be with uh, those teaching and preaching. God, help their words be clear. Uh, speak to us that uh, you would have us here this morning. Um, just thank you again for loving us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.